This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the picturesque duchy of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 18 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. I want to start today's episode with a question, Drew. Have you ever been to the Czech Republic? Uh, actually, no, I haven't. But I, uh, a bunch of my family has. In fact, a number of my in-laws are in the process of trying to teach themselves Czech, which is a, a notoriously difficult language. My brother-in-law actually once told me that they actually speak Czech in heaven, since it takes an eternity to learn. <laughs> but uh, you have me curious. That's an odd question to ask at the start of this show. You are an American historian, after all. Well, the reason I asked it, Drew, is because today the way of improvement leads home leads to 1930s Czechoslovakia. Uh, I recently was made aware of historian Bruce Berglund's new book. It's entitled The Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. And I thought Bruce would be a great guest for the podcast to do some comparative history with us here. Okay, all right. I think I'm with you on that. Uh, and, you know, I'm always up for a little bit of comparative historical analysis. Yeah, the more I become familiar with Bruce's book, the more parallels and connections I see between mid-20th century Prague, American history, and even some of our current conversation in the United States about religion, public life, and perhaps even the state of our country under its current president. But before we get to that, it sounds like the Messiah College History Department has had a busy few weeks. Yeah, Drew, busy is an understatement. Uh, Last week, some of you who read the blog already know this, but last week we had our annual Humanities Symposium. I'll say a few more words about that in my story today. Uh, Yesterday was a huge day. We had Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Ed Larson here uh, giving a lecture about uh, the election of 1800. I joked on one of the social media outlets today, either Twitter or Facebook, that uh, if you came in late to his lecture on the election of 1800, you may have thought you were sitting in a lecture on the election of 2016. (laughs) Um, Some very interesting comparisons. And then uh, I had the privilege of having C-SPAN come to Messiah College yesterday, and they uh, filmed my Pennsylvania history class for an upcoming episode of their show, uh, Lectures on History. So be looking for that. But the big day in the Messiah College history department is actually Uh, On Saturday, March uh, 4th, we had our National History Day. Messiah College hosts one of the regional competitions for the National History Day. We had over 600 middle schoolers and high schoolers on campus. We had a lot of our alums and our students and people in the local community judging their projects, their websites, their documentaries, their exhibits, their papers. Uh, and we had some, uh, some of the winners go on then to the state competition and then in the hopes of making it to the National History Day, National Finals. I think it's at the University of Maryland this year. Yeah, I actually remember as an undergrad, you uh, put a lot of pressure on us as students to uh, serve as uh, judges for these History Day projects. And, uh, you know, I, I would point out I did answer the call and I was a judge for you and I was one of your students and advisees. But, um, you know, it, it is really fascinating work and I think it's an increasingly important way for us to connect young students 
to uh, historical thinking, which of course is becoming more essential than ever. Yeah, I mean it's uh, you know it's shout out National History Day. Get your get your students involved, especially if you're a history teacher. Absolutely. Um, I do want to take a moment here and thank our sponsors. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the generous contributions of Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler. We're also supported by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. And I also want to say thank you to all of our donors at every level. Uh, as you know, we have started this Patreon campaign. Please go find us on www.patreon. Dot com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon. We really need your support to keep this podcast going at the quality that we want to keep it going. So please consider making a pledge. You can make a pledge uh, as low as $1 a month uh, or as high as what, Drew? Uh, well, our highest sky's tier, the limit, yeah, right? highest tier is $20 a month, but I think you are allowed to exceed that. You're also, you know, I should point out, you can, you can give a flat donation. If you'd rather not be locked into a monthly pledge, there there are ways through the Patreon campaign to just give uh, a flat amount. And uh, I do want to point out too, if if you want to navigate there, if you're on the blog uh, pretty regularly, you can also navigate to the campaign through thewaveimprovement.com and just click on support there in the menu. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can help us out. Uh, every little bit helps, and we like to to share to, to share the love and and get get support from a lot of a lot of different people because you know then you become an investor in the thing that the thing that we're trying to create so we'd really appreciate anyone and everyone who is interested in good historical thinking especially in this moment uh in american history it's a grassroots campaign it's a grassroots right, campaign Joe. it's um, a movement like you've never seen before and there's goodies the coffee yeah, mugs absolutely. are out coffee, the coffee mugs, mugs are you've out. maybe seen pictures of those some of you already have your coffee mugs I, there um, was an abraham lincoln holding a coffee mug right was that that's abraham right one appeared at abraham an abraham lincoln statue in richmond virginia so you know it's legit if but, it's but, on abraham lincoln's lap but here's my issue with the coffee mugs drew I've yet to hold a coffee mug in my hand. Where are they? You're stashing them in your in your house in Harrisburg. Absolutely, I think I think they're right by my dining room table. All right, okay. So, producers checklist: continue to work on the the pledge campaign. Actually, get a coffee mug to the to the man in charge. Thank you so much to all of our donors. But before we get to Bruce Berglund in a, a really fascinating interview, I think you, John, have a story for us. Last week, I took a seat on a panel of six historians, all faculty members at Messiah College. We were tasked with explaining the role of slavery in world history. The panel included a historian of Greece and Rome, a medievalist, a modern European historian, a historian of India, an early American historian, and a modern American historian. We all had five minutes to summarize what slavery looked like in the particular parts of the world and particular time periods that we study and teach. We then opened the floor to over an hour of questions from those in attendance. The event was part of the Messiah College Annual Humanities Symposium. This year's theme for the week was slavery and justice. I always enjoy these kind of events. While it is always fun to do history with my departmental colleagues, panels like this also challenge me to place my understanding of slavery in early American history into a larger global and chronological context. During the conversation, I was able to see both the way slavery was different in other parts of the world and other time periods, but also how despite changes in context, there was always a lot about slavery that looked similar no matter where one traveled around the globe or how far one went back in time. This kind of comparative work is essential for American historians and American history teachers. It reminds us that the United States is part of the world and has been shaped throughout history by its interaction with the world. This kind of exercise in comparative history has a positive tendency to soften our oftentimes arrogant sense as Americans of our own exceptionalism. In 1992, the Journal of American History, which many of you know as the flagship scholarly journal in the field, ran a symposium focused on the internationalization of American history. 
Those who wrote articles for the symposium reminded us that human beings and the ideas, labor, culture, and goods that they produce are not confined by borders. The authors challenged historians and history teachers to think more deeply about the way Americans have always been connected with people living outside of the United States, and to remember that the history of our country cannot be explained fully without thinking about something akin to what we today call globalization. The call for the internationalization of United States history was championed by the authors of the 2000 La Pietra Report, the published proceedings of a conference of American historians who met at New York University's Florence campus in the 1990s to think about the relationship between American history and world history. This project led to a series of essays edited by NYU intellectual historian Thomas Bender, titled Rethinking American History in a Global Age. Later, Bender published his A Nation Among Nations, America's Place in World History. The La Pietra Report and the new internationalization of American history has either directly or indirectly shaped much recent work in the field and has even made headway into the school curriculum. Historian David Armitage, for example, has placed the Declaration of Independence into a global context. Fred Anderson's work on the French and Indian War situates this North American conflict in larger international conflicts between England and France. Caleb McDaniel's recent work on the American abolitionist movement interprets the efforts to end slavery in the United States in a larger transnational context. Daniel Rogers has written about the Atlantic dimensions of the progressive movement. And Mary Dudziak has shown us how the civil rights movement was made possible by America's involvement in the Cold War as the architects of American foreign policy realized that it was difficult to extol abroad the values of an American democracy scarred by Jim Crow. In our contemporary climate, with a new president of the United States who rejects globalization in favor of an American-first approach to the world, it becomes more important than ever to remind students and the general public that our lives as Americans are and always have been interconnected with others around the globe. It is essential to remind the president that America first does not reflect reality, either in the past or the present. In this sense, scholarly work focused on the internationalization of American history and teaching at the K-12 through level on the same themes could possibly serve as an act of resistance. But I am becoming more and more convinced every day that in the age of Trump, we cannot sacrifice the civic role of history on the altar of explaining everything in global terms. Now more than ever, our students and the public at large need lessons, historical lessons about American identity and the things that over time have made us unique, dare I say exceptional, in the world. What did our founding fathers believe about government, elections, religious liberty, national security, and the things that make republics strong? To what extent is America a nation of immigrants, an asylum for humankind? What role does and has a free press played in American life? How have protests and other kinds of reform, resistance, and populism helped or hindered American democracy? Setting the record straight on these matters can also be a form of responsible citizenship. While all of these issues can be addressed in a global context, they must also be considered in a way that is unique to us as a nation. In the end, we continue to need more history, historians, and history teachers to help us find our way. Thanks, John. Let's now turn to today's guest. Bruce Berglund 
is professor of history and director of the honors program at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He has written extensively on Christianity and modern Eastern European history. His first book was the co-edited essay collection Christianity and Modernity in Eastern Europe, published by Central European University Press in 2010. His most recent book, Hot Off the Presses, is Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. Bruce has also turned his attention to the history of sport. He is currently working on a history of world ice hockey and the globalization of sport to be published as part of the University of California press series, Sport and World History. In addition to published books and articles, Bruce's work in global sports history extends into online media. He hosts the weekly podcast New Books in Sports and has featured episodes on Taiwanese baseball, Japanese sumo, Indian cricket, Scottish soccer, Canadian hockey, and American football. I am so excited today to have Bruce Berglund on the program. As Drew just mentioned, Bruce is a professor of history and he's director of the honors program at Calvin College. And we are going to talk today about his uh, new book and also some of the other things he's doing. So Bruce, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good. Your, now, your new book, Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. Um, before we get to that, you are a historian of Central and Eastern Europe. Tell us a little bit how you got into that field. What sparked your interest in that field? Because you usually run into like historians of the West or you know historians of non-Western history. But tell me a little bit about the kind of field of Central and uh, Eastern Europe and how you got involved. Yeah, yeah. So a question I often get when I'm in Prague doing research is uh, Czechs will ask me if if I am if I have Czech ancestry and and I tell them no and and they're typically surprised. You know, they'll ask, "Well, what do, what are you doing here? Why didn't you learn our language and come study our history?" So um, you know, like you, I was a, a child of the Cold War, growing up in the 1970s and and 80s, and. Uh, um, and Cold War politics, the rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union was a subject of, uh, of fascination for me. I read a lot of news magazines. I would watch the news. Uh, but it also really affected my psychology in that I, I knew that, the, uh, that nuclear war was coming and I was fearful of it as a child. Um, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I drew out a map. So I grew up in, in Duluth, Minnesota, which I knew was a tertiary target of the Soviet union because (laughs) of the port facilities. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, uh, so I had drawn out a map of my hometown with the circles of destruction. If a 10 megaton bomb had hit the city and figured out, you know, what, what would happen to my neighborhood. And, uh, so yeah, so, so I was both, uh, fascinated and fearful, of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact bloc. So so I had something of a sense of knowing my enemy, and that's what drew me to, or that's what sparked my interest in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. So when I went off to uh, to college as an undergraduate, I studied Russian, Russian language, and I thought that, uh, that I would do some kind of work dealing with uh, still the Soviet Union. Uh, but it was while I was in college in 1989 that the revolutions in Eastern Europe took place. And, uh, and those are really key events for me. And uh, I remember watching the fall of the wall on, on CNN. And in the wake, especially of the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, I became particularly interested in the writings of Václav Havel, the, uh, the playwright who became the first post-communist president. So I read his work about morality and politics. I read the work of other uh, Czech writers. And so my, my specific interest in, in Czech culture and Czechoslovakia really, really sparked during that period. Uh, and then after I graduated from college, I made a backpacking trip through Europe. And the, and the one place that I most wanted to go was Prague. And when I went there, I thought this this is an amazing city. This would be great to come back here and and do some kind of work here. And uh, and it ended up being uh, being history, being a historian. And so uh, my wife and I have lived twice uh, in Prague for year long stays. Uh, our oldest child was born in Prague during one of those stays. Our youngest child was born in Prague during one of those stays. So so that interest, that that Cold War fascination and fear as a child, and then um, my response to what happened in 1989, it's interesting now to look back past the midpoint of my career and see how 
uh, how that's really set the pattern of my professional life and also my personal life. That's really interesting, Bruce. Um, so a couple things that I pulled out of that, uh, your little bio there. One, um, I couldn't help as you, I heard you talking about your fascination with, uh, with uh, the Cold War and the, and the Soviets and so forth. I couldn't help think about the intersection of that interest. And then later in the interview here, we're going to talk about your current project um, on, on ho- international hockey. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and, then, and then you grew up in Duluth, right? So yes. I'm, I'm seeing all kinds of things sort of connecting here. Although I would probably, I don't know, I'm going to challenge you on, um, on Duluth. Maybe you're being too uh, generous with Duluth as a tertiary city. I would probably put that a little lower on the list. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just kidding. So, no. bringing, yeah. so bringing up, bringing up hockey, you know, we just had the anniversary recently of the that's miracle right. on ice and that's, that's still one of the, I know you're a sports fan, right. John, and you probably have these, these moments throughout your life that yeah. are, that are anchor points yep. in your life as a sports fan. And for me, I remember because, uh, as you might recall, the game was not on live television. Yeah, it, was it was it was rebroadcast later. But I listened to the game live with my dad on the radio, sitting in our kitchen exactly. that afternoon. and and I you know, I still have such fond and vivid memories right. of of that afternoon. For our for our generation, I think not to get too off track here, but for our generation, I think I think, you know, in between Kennedy assassination and 9-11, right, there was the where were you uh, on that on that day? And then, you know, I could vividly remember it, too. I can remember then, you know, uh, being very nervous, you know, about Sunday. Right. They still had to beat Finland. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, it's just kind of sitting there. I think I had like a little <laughs> tape recorder. I had like one of those like little makeshift kind of tape recorders. And I remember taping like Al Michaels's call at the end of the game. I still have that tape somewhere, Do you know, you holding really? it up wow. to the, holding it up to the TV. You know? Wow. So, wow. Anyway, let's, let's talk, let's talk a little bit, Bruce. Now, so, so you're a, so you're a historian of central uh, and Eastern Europe uh, and then you also have a particular interest in religious history, which kind of comes to both of those interests kind of come together in your new book. So has has religious history always been an interest uh, of yours? No, no, not at all. When I did my dissertation uh, in in Czech history, uh, I I did my research on the community, the, the refugees uh, from Czechoslovakia. Okay who left the country before World War II and ended up in England. So it was a community of about 15,000 people, uh, mainly uh, mainly Jews, but also Czechs, Germans, uh, a few Slovaks. Uh, there was a government in exile in London. Uh, they formed a military brigade. Uh, there were pilots who served in the RAF. Uh, there were uh, exiles who started munitions plants. There were newspapers. There were books published in Czech. There were schools. And so my dissertation was something of a, a political and social history of that uh, of that group of exiles. But while it was in, while while I was in Prague doing that research, uh, one thing uh, I noticed is well, you know, one thing to start out. Some of your listeners will likely know that that the Czechs are. Uh, one of the uh, most secular nations in Europe, if not in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, surveys and census data show that anywhere from 40% to 60% of Czechs state that they are atheists. And uh, But at the same time, something I noticed while living there is within Czech culture, uh, the national heroes uh, for the Czechs are figures of the Bohemian Reformation. Right. So Jan Hus from the from the 14th century, uh, Jan Amos Kamensky or or Comenius, as he's known in the West from uh, from the 17th century. So you have these important figures in, in their church history, and then looking at contemporary culture, you have people like Václav Havel who insisted he didn't believe in God in any creedal or traditional sense, and yet he spoke consistently in his writings about a, a, a moral stand, or excuse me, an eternal standard for morality. Uh, and so he would speak 
of of God without using the terminology of God. And and this is a strong element that you see in Czech culture. And so I was curious about this uh, this contradiction that you have a population that's that's overwhelmingly secular, that's even anti-religious, and yet uh, religion in the history of the church plays a strong part in its in its past, in the, the formation of the national identity. And then in 20th century Czech culture and politics, you have figures like Václav Havel and Tomáš Masaryk, who I write about in, in my book, who saw religion or spirituality as an important part in society and politics. Let me just ask a quick follow-up, and this is just kind yeah. of a, a kind of selfish question, but hey, it's my podcast, right? So uh, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. What? what uh, I'm half Slovak, right? Yeah. Now, now, so I come from a a a sort of Slovakian cult, immigrant culture on my mother's side that is deeply Catholic, but in a very yes. kind of popular, kind of almost folk type uh, type Catholicism. Um, is that pretty accurate for Slovakia as someone who knows, who has done very little research on, on my heritage on that side of the family? Yes. You still have, uh, um, Catholicism is a much stronger part of Slovak culture, yeah. uh, even today. And, uh, and even in the Eastern part of the Czech Republic, the current country of the Czech Republic, the region called Moravia, okay. uh, Catholicism, uh, still has, um, a stronger hold than in Bohemia, the Western part of the Czech Republic where, where Prague is. Uh, and that was something. So, so the period I study in my book is, is the first, what's called the first Czechoslovak Republic from the 1920s to the 1930s. And this was the leaders of the state were primarily Bohemians. They were Czechs. And one of the things they were concerned about, they were trying to create this notion of a single Czechoslovak nation. Right. Uh, and they were trying to really avoid hacking off the Slovaks because mm. they knew if the Slovaks break away, then we're going to have troubles with the Germans and with the Hungarian minorities who live within our border. And one of the principal issues that the Czechs had to deal with, you know, who were largely secular, was the religiosity of the Slovaks and um, this this folk Catholicism that that you talk about, but also that many of the political leaders uh, on the on the Slovak side were strongly identified with the Catholic Church, and and many were Catholic priests. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we'll have to, I, I'd love to ask you more about this. I mean, you know, I grew up in a town in North Jersey with a large Slovak and Czech population, and I could tell you stories about, you know, oh, yeah, not yeah. wanting to walk on the same side of the street kind of thing. Well, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I'll jump I'll jump in on that. You yeah. know, there is this common notion uh in you know in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia, uh the Slovaks resent resent the Czechs, this you know there's this sense of the Czechs view themselves as superior, right, and right. Uh, you know, whereas Slovaks view them as as cold, as secular, uh, as you could say, as too German, too West European. Uh, on the Czech side, uh, Czechs view Slovaks as being backwards, as being bumpkins, and and part yeah. of that stereotype is, oh, they're you know, uh, you know, we're modern, and they're all a bunch of backward Catholics. Right, right. No, yeah. My my mother got married in a in a in a uh, Slovak Catholic church. The service was in Slovak. Um, you know, I mean, I, I got dragged to like gymnastics school at like the Sokol <laughs> Hall, you know, when I, was a, you know when I was a little kid. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk more about this at, in the stands at a Calvin College volleyball game at one of these, yeah, you know, absolutely. one of these days. Um, but tell me this, let's, let's move on here. Um, you know, listeners of our podcast, obviously, you know, we're a very kind of American history centered podcast. And one of the things we're trying to do with this episode is play into a new, um, well, I guess it's about a couple decades old, a new kind of emphasis in American history, looking at American history in a kind of international uh, kind of context and, and, you know, the interconnectedness of the world and so forth. Um, listeners of the podcast, again, know that we typically do some shows every season on religious history in America. Uh, what are some of the larger issues in the study of religion in you know modern Europe or even in Central Europe uh, that you know, might resonate with, uh, you know, or that audience, that audience of our podcast who might list, be interested in American religion. Yeah. Well, so the big issue that, um, 
is is always present in in studying modern European uh, religious history is uh, the arc of secularization or religious right. decline, right? So so as you know, you see uh, much higher indices of belief and uh, religious practice in the United States. Uh, as as you know and write about on your blog, uh, religion is really a key element in politics in the United States. And in Europe, in contrast, you see uh, in countries other than the Czech Republic, you have you have higher rates of uh, people claiming no belief in God. You have very low rates across the continent with only a few uh, a few exceptions of participation in religious services, identification with churches. And so the big the big question then uh, in the field is what brings that about? And uh, the traditional answer drawing from um, uh, really from sociologists and the theory of, of secularization is that uh, this this decline in religiosity and belief is part and parcel of the process of modernization, right? right so right. Uh, in going back to the Enlightenment, going back to industrialization and urbanization in the 19th century, the rise of nationalism, uh, the rise of socialist worker movements, uh, all of these things contributed to a steady, inexorable decline of religion across the continent. And uh, what historians have found recently, so this has been, I would say, in the last 15, 20 years, historians working on uh, working in England and the Low Countries and in France, is that they found that, no, we don't have this steady pattern of, of religious decline. Uh, instead, you see a, a high degree of, of variation by particular region within countries. And then the other thing that comes out, and this is, this is work that's been particularly done on England, is up until really the 1950s, uh, people still tended to uh, identify with a church, uh, to um, to structure their life narratives in Christian terms. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 1960s that you see the, the big sudden decline in religious practice and belief. And, uh, and so the work that I've done uh, looking at religion in the Czech Republic and in Prague really connects from this, this body of research that's been done by historians uh, uh, Hugh McLeod and, and Callum Brown, to name a couple, in that I'm looking at the, the common story about the Czech Republic, if we're looking, looking today at the secularized country, is that we can look back to the 19th century to nationalism, industrialization, and urbanization. Uh, we can look back even further to uh, the 1600s when after the Bohemian Reformation, uh, this region, the Czech lands, were forcibly re-Catholicized uh, re by the Habsburgs. There are, you know, there are scholars who point back to that and say uh, this is the beginnings of, of Czech secularization. So even in the 20th century, you still see signs of the uh, the resilience of religion um, in some areas of Prague, some areas of of the Czech lands, and so this is the, you know, rather than seeing secularization as this um, um, determined process, this inexorable process, what I'm looking at as a historian is to find out, um, you know, asking this question or starting from the point, this wasn't inevitable. It wasn't an inevitable product of, of modernization. Uh, where do we see uh, or what are the causes of religious decline, recognizing that people have moved away from the churches over the course of the 20th century? And where do you see instances where this product, uh, process stalls or even uh, turns around? And uh, that's what I look at in my book. So the the sort of co common like a, a narrative you get from like the Christian conservatives in America, right, is, you know, yep. we're, we're going the way of Europe, right? It's a little more nuanced yep. and complicated than that. Right. Yes, we're, we're absolutely. Moving towards yeah. a European secularization. Um, and, and, you know, I think you and other historians who you draw upon are suggesting, well, you know, it's it's a little more nuanced. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, and so the 
what has always caused people to rethink the whole theory of secularization is looking at the example of the United States, where you see vibrant religiosity. Uh, but at the same time, and you know this, is uh, looking at the United States, and in particular the millennial generation, is uh, are we seeing with that generation uh, something of the process that we've seen in, in Europe in the, in the post-war period? Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about the castle and the cathedral here. I mean, you yeah. kind of let us in nicely there. Um, I had a chance to read some of the book. Um, at the start, you say that you're writing about, and I love this this word, you're writing about what you call somethingism uh, as a consistent feature of Czech religious history. Uh, what is something? ism. Explain yeah, that to yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I began my book by saying this is a book about something. And uh, so somethingism, and this, this connects with what I was talking about earlier, uh, this pattern you see in Czech culture, where you have people like like Václav Havel and, and Tomáš Masaryk, the first president of Czechoslovakia, who I write about in my book, who uh, had a belief in God and in the importance of the divine in terms of being the, the standard for uh, individual morality. And yet they were reluctant to use the term God or any kind of traditional, creedal, theological notion of, of what God is, of how people should communicate with God and, and so forth. And uh, you see this, this is a, a consistent thread, and, and Czech scholars have pointed this out. Uh, already in the 19th century, you have intellectuals who speak uh, with reverence of the Christian tradition, uh, who speak of providence in history, mm -hmm. who speak of the importance of the spiritual over the material, yet they, they, they admit they don't belong to any church. Uh, and they don't even like to use the term God when describing the divine. Instead, what comes up a lot, and I talk about in this book, is that they'll use the term that there's there's something. There's, there's something sacred. There's something eternal. And we must turn our attention to that. And the word, uh, there's, there's a, a Catholic priest and sociologist named Tomáš Halik. And he's, uh, he's written about this. Uh, and, and he's pointed out that uh, these these Czech intellectuals will use the the Czech word nieco, which means something, to describe this this object of their belief. And so Halik coined the term niecismus, which means literally somethingism. <laughs> and uh, and so he's described this in in an essay. And I uh, picked up the term and and used it as kind of the beginning of my historical inquiry to ask, okay, where does this where does this somethingism come from? How is it articulated? How is it expressed? And uh, and you do see, uh, you know, the, my book concentrates on the 1920s and 30s, but in the conclusion of my book, which moves up to today, uh, you do see something of, I guess, a theology of of somethingism. And and the big parts of it is that uh, God is beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to explain. Uh, God does exist, uh, or the divine exists. Um, and, uh, the, the way, the best way to, how to say this, the best way to live a spiritual life, to live a moral life is separate from the traditional churches and traditional doctrines. Uh, so this is really the beginning of, you know, your, your listeners are familiar with, with the term, uh, to be spiritual rather than religious. Right. And we see this already in the 1920s and 1930s in Czechoslovakia with these Czech intellectuals who are, who are arguing for something as opposed to, as opposed to God. Now, is this something-ism, Bruce? Is this, is this viewed as a kind of, you know, kind of moral fabric in some ways that kind of holds the nation together, um, gives it order? Yeah. I mean, it's, so it's articulated in that way. Uh, no, it's not no. the force if you're going that way. Well, no, I'm just curious. Um, I'm thinking about like the yeah, founding no. of America, right? You know, you need a kind of moral republic. You need a kind of civic yes, humanism. Exactly. Uh, you know, in yeah. some ways, in some ways, these intellectuals you're talking about who defend the idea of somethingism sound a lot like at least some of the American founding fathers, right, on this front. Yes, you're exactly, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and Tomasz Masaryk, uh, so Tomasz Masaryk, the first president, um, was married to an American, uh, a woman from Brooklyn, we'll a, get to uh, her. yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. But go ahead. And, uh, and he was a student of American history, and he, in his reading in particular of Tocqueville, of Democracy in America, he saw the importance of exactly this, that there has to be, um, you know, I, I made the joke about the force. It, it, it's not, right, it's, it's not a divinity that's right. holding the nation together. Instead, it is... Uh, what the nation should aim for. It's the measure for the actions of individual citizens, for the nation as a whole, and for the state. They should look to what he said, they should look to eternity in order to, um, in order to, how to say this, uh, eternity should be the motivation for individual action towards your neighbors, it should be the motivation for the work of the state's leaders. Sure. And uh, and so certainly what Masaryk was trying to do was to establish a civil religion, uh, just as you see with the with the founding fathers. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. This whole idea of civil religion. Let's dig. Let's dig a little deeper into the book, Drew. You got a question? Yeah, as you say in your introduction, your book is a, a broad cultural history. You discuss journalism, yeah. literature, art, theology, philosophy. Um, but at the center of the book is a work of, uh, actually a work of architecture, the castle in Prague. So uh, I was just wondering if you could explain maybe a little bit more the significance of the, of the castle within your, the context of your project. So, so Prague Castle, Prague Castle dates back centuries to the, uh, to the uh, medieval period. And uh, uh, it had been, once upon a time, the seat of the kings of Bohemia. Uh, after Bohemia became part of the Habsburg Empire, there were different Habsburg emperors who uh, established that as their capital, the castle in Prague. But by the early 20th century, um, before World War I, Prague Castle uh, was really a rundown, um, you know, a rundown old fortress. Yes, there were some administrative offices there, uh, but, but the place was in bad shape. So 1918, World War I ends, Czechoslovakia gains independence after the breakup of Austria-Hungary, and Prague Castle now becomes the seat of an independent state, a republic. And when Tomasz Masaryk uh, returns triumphantly to Prague, he was actually in the United States when, when the war ended, when he returns to Prague, uh, he goes right from the terrain station to Prague Castle, and, and he finds the place is just a mess. And so it's, it's realized, he realizes it, as well as uh, the leaders of the new, the new Republic, that we have to fix this place up in order for it to be a functioning administrative center, uh, but also to have it be a symbolic center for this, this new independent democratic state. And so what ends up happening by about 1921 is that uh, Masaryk, appoints as the architect to design the renovations of the castle, a, uh, uh, an architect from Slovenia, actually, uh, a Slovene architect named Joža Plečnik. Uh, prior to the war, Plečnik had been teaching architecture in Prague, and he had stayed on through the war. And so after the war, he had, he had built up this reputation among within the, the guild Czech architects. So he was well-known, well-established among other Czech architects. He was highly, highly regarded. And they all recommended him. This is the one guy who's got to redo the castle. Uh, and so Masaryk commissions Plechnik to redesign the interior, uh, interior rooms in the castle to serve as basically his office and his apartment. And then in addition to that, he begins work on the exterior courtyards and gardens of the castle. Uh, and he does this work from 1921 to, uh, to 1935. And uh, so, so as is working, the person who really functions as the liaison between Masaryk the president and the architect is Tomasz Masaryk's daughter, Alice Masaryk. And she, her, her official role is that she's the director of the Czechoslovak Red Cross, but she's also acting as the go-between between her father and the architect. Something that you see in the letters that Alice sends to, to Plechnik, and there are dozens of letters that she sends to him, is she's trying to communicate her father's vision for a, uh, for a moral republic 
for a state that pursues, that, that measures its actions according to eternity, according to God, uh, that he's trying to create this civil religion for the independent state. And she's communicating these ideas to Plechnik, who is a devout Catholic. And Plechnik then sets about in his designs uh, on the inspiration of Alice Masaryk to create a, a, an architectural embodiment of Masaryk's religious and moral idea for the Czechoslovak state. And, uh, and so this is, yeah, it is interesting. And this is, this is what I look at as the communication uh, between the architect, the president, and the president's daughter, and then what comes across in the different aspects of the castle design or the renovation designs that Plechny carries out. And, uh, and what I really come down to is, and, and something that people at the time recognized, is that there was this mysterious, spiritual, eternal aspect. Something that Plechnik sought to do in his architecture, and he explained this to his students, is that architecture has to be eternal. Architecture is an art form that is a ladder to the heavens. And whether you're designing a church, and he designed a number of churches, or a castle, this is the aim of architecture, and that's what he sought to do for the castle in Prague. So would you say it's fair then to say that the castle in Prague that is, is a kind of monument to some to uh, somethingism? Somethingism? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing because uh, so so Masaryk, Masaryk had uh, been raised in the Catholic Church in, in the 19, he was born in 1850, and his is a classic story of a 19th century int European intellectual who just rejects Catholicism. He leaves the Catholic Church. Uh, he spent a brief time flirting with uh, Reformed Protestantism, but really throughout much of his life, uh, he, he did not go to church. Uh, he was explicit in saying that the churches had nothing to offer him instead, but he did state, I do, I am religious, I believe in God, uh, I believe that, that God is the standard that I must pursue in terms of my individual actions, my actions as a politician. Um, and so even though he resisted a traditional Christian notion of God, of worship, uh, and so forth, he still entrusted to this conservative and even mystical Catholic the creation of you know what would be the the seat of the republic, yeah. and uh, and so it's interesting what comes out in Plechnik's designs are um, it, are elements that resist any type of how to say it. There's there are no specific religious or philosophical connections. They're, they are, as many people have described them, they are mysterious. And so my argument is that um, many many of the architectural historians who study Prague Castle and written about it describe it as a monument to democracy. My argument instead is that it is a monument to somethingism in that uh, I, I close the book by talking about how when I was doing my research, I'd often go from from the archive in the castle. I would sit in the gardens and eat my lunch and I would watch people. And you'd see, you know, every day I'd see people looking at different objects that that Plechnik had designed with just this quizzical look on their face. Okay. What is this? And, and scratching their heads. And and so it's those objects were pointing people towards something to something transcendent. But. There is no inscription. There's no explanation into as to what that what that something is. So, so what was the Masaryk's connection to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. So Tomasz Masaryk uh, had met a a woman from Brooklyn, Charlotte, uh, when they were both uh, they were both studying in in Germany in Leipzig. Uh, this is in the what was it the eighteen late eighteen sixties uh, or eighteen seventies, excuse me. Okay. And uh, they fell in love. And uh, they have this this intense relationship in terms of their reading to each other from uh, John Stuart Mill, 
this this is a connection of intellects as well as hearts. They would use that phrase. Right. Uh, Charlotte goes back to Brooklyn after this um, after this meeting they have, and they're writing to each other constantly. Uh, one of the things that I was able to find is that Charlotte kept a diary of. We don't have the letters that that Tomas sent, but we have Charlotte's diary of all the letters, and she writes the subject matter of everything that that Tomas was writing about. And so their relationship intensifies. And what becomes clear is that they see their their um, their relationship, their marriage that they're planning, as a partnership that is going to be unlike unlike marriage at the time. Uh, Tomas Masaryk was remarkable in his view of women and women's abilities, and the he had an idea that he wanted his wife to be an equal partner mm-hmm. uh, after they got married. So so Charlotte's. A maiden name was Garig, and Tomasz Masaryk took that as part of his name. So after their marriage, he was known as Tomasz Garig Masaryk. Uh, so he had this understanding that he and his wife were equal partners. And what they wanted to do was they had they had big plans to remake religion, remake morality, remake uh, political states. Uh, they were they were true nineteenth century intellectual dreamers in that they saw the perfection of humanity in front of them and they were going to work on that together. So part of what Tomasz Masaryk gains from his wife is that she was raised Unitarian. And so these are, she's a 19th century Unitarian. So she believes in a, in a personal God and she believes that she's an instrument of God. And this is something that he adopts from her and he also adopts from her homeland the notion of the American separation of church and state. And so when he becomes president, he wants to instill, he wants to instill, as I talked about earlier, this American civil religion that he's learned about, especially from Tocqueville. But he also wants to install or, or establish an American-style separation of church and state, which I won't go into the details, but it, it didn't really work in the context of, of Catholic Central Europe. So uh, so they have children, and uh, their oldest child is Alice. And um, when Alice had uh, finished university, she was interested in um, – she was interested in social work. She wanted to do something to serve society. And uh, she went to Chicago for uh, a year. And she worked in Chicago at the settlement houses yeah. in Chicago. She briefly worked at Hull House with Jane Adams. Right. Uh, but she worked mainly at the University of Chicago uh, settlement on the south side, so near the stockyards. She was actually there at the same time that Upton Sinclair was there doing wow. research for, uh, yeah, for the jungle. And uh, – and so she brings back to America, or excuse me, she brings back from America to Prague a an understanding of social gospel Protestantism and this notion that you can combine religious faith, the motivation coming out of faith to serve society, and mix that in with, um, how to say it, with social scientific methods, right? That we're going to study a situation, we're going to use data, and here's how we're going to help improve people's lives. Let's let's shift gears slightly here. We don't have too much time left, but uh, recently I read a piece, a blog post that you wrote on the blog, The Anxious Bench, uh, where you were talking about, I think it was in the context, right, of Eastern European Christianity, but you were talking about pastors, uh, Christian pastors, uh, drawing on uh, the history of Eastern Europe. Um, I think I got that right, for, for sermon illustrations. Um, Tell me a little bit about that piece, and I think this doesn't just apply to sermon illustrations, but I think there's larger points to be made here, right, about the way history can be used uh, as lessons or in contemporary life kind of in a more general way, too, not just for pastors in the pulpit. So uh, tell me a little bit about that piece, uh, if you can summarize it. Yeah, yeah. So my concern is not so much, uh, you know, pastors using illustrations from from Eastern Europe, but but European history more broadly. That's so, right, yeah. so I've heard sermons as as you have about Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag. I've heard sermons about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Martin Niemöller, Cory Ten Boom. Uh, there are these different heroic figures. You know, the the history, especially of the Second World War and the Holocaust, is this this. Uh, 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 fund of stories that that pastors are able to use. 
use to give examples of heroic Christians who stood against Nazi oppression or who uh, uh, defied the Holocaust. And something that I found in, in my research, and not only in my individual work, uh, uh, about, uh, let's see, about five years ago, uh, I edited a book a collection of essays called Christianity and Modernity in Eastern Europe. And that uh, there were a group of a number of scholars from the United States, Western Europe and Eastern Europe uh, doing research on different countries in, in Central and Eastern Europe. And, and something that was striking in the essays looking at uh, people living under communism, living under the Nazis, living under the fascist regimes in Central Europe in the 1930s and during the war is that the stories of Christian heroes uh, standing against oppression are really, really, really rare. Yeah. And what you find instead in looking at the history of, of the European churches in, in the 1930s and the 1940s are church leaders and, and lay people who uh, they put before the gospel – uh, they put the interests of the nation, the, the stability and security of the nation first. And they understand Christianity. They understand their, their faith. They understand Christian teaching through the lens of, of national interests. And uh, the point I wanted to make with that blog post is to call upon pastors to say, you know, it's, it's time to, to stop talking about these heroic, uh, heroic individuals because – they were really extraordinary people. They were singular people. And we're deceiving ourselves in the pews if we listen to those stories and think, yeah, that's me. I would have done the same thing. And, and yeah. if the cir circumstances were similar, I would do the same thing. In, in reality, most people who were in the pews in the 1930s and 40s did not act that way. Uh, they were moved. Some of them were moved by fear, uh, but many of them were moved by concern, first of all, with with the security of the nation. Yeah, that's Drew and I are kind of chuckling here, um, you know, thinking about the, the again the parallels between um, you know the the American church and and Europe. Um, great stuff, though. Uh, you know, maybe we, I, I can think off the top of my head, and I think some of my listeners will think this too of some people in America who've written some of those heroic biographies of some of those European, yep. <laughs> those yes, European exactly. figures, right? Are you listening, Eric Metaxas? Let's, let's wrap this up, Bruce. Our time's just about running out. Um, you know, let, let me ask you just a, you know, a sort of general question here. So in your view, uh, you know, the history of Christianity in Central Europe, which is your field of study, um, in what ways can that field help us understand uh, some of the things going on in our current American uh, context right now? A lot of people are raising a lot of questions about things that went on in the 1930s, for example, and, and making yeah, comparisons yeah, and, you know, help us sort through that a little bit here. Yeah. So it's funny you say that, you know, in the wake of the election, uh, I turned to my colleagues in, in American history and political scientists who, uh, who look at American politics. And, and I, I said to them, you know, please tell me, please tell me that the system will hold. You know, please tell me that that the better angels uh, in in America will uh, will get us through, because the historian of 1930s Europe is really concerned right now. Yeah. And I remember I, I had a class, a seminar with a group of students, and, and there were a couple political scientists and a couple Americanist American historians who were there, and they all started raising analogies to 1930s Europe. And I shook my head, I put my head in my hands, and I thought, oh man, we're we're just doomed if yeah. if they're going right away way to 1930s Europe. So, um, you know, beyond beyond the current circumstances, I, I think something that's, it, it, it is applicable, um, you know, connected to what I talked about before. When, when, when I was working with this group of scholars leading up to the, the collection of essays that I edited, right. you know, one of the concerns that came up, it came up for me personally, and, and I know with talking with my colleagues, we, they, they were also thinking of it. As we looked at the way, um, the, the 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 people lived out their faith in different nations. Uh, one thing that was striking and that really gave me pause was it was hard to see um, when the faith transcended 
national divisions, national identities and, and interests. And, and I had a long discussion actually with a, with a colleague uh, who's a, a historian of Catholicism at, at UC Berkeley. And we went back and forth on this question of, as we look in history, can we point to instances where we can see people who, um, who understood their faith separate from their particular cultural or national or tribal context. Right. And, and it's really hard to see that. And uh, uh, so that's been something that, and, and I think that's something, and you'd be better able to answer this than, than I would. Um, I, I think that's something that American Christians aren't aware of, right? That, that yeah. we have in, in contemporary America, uh, especially with evangelicals, there's this notion of we have the pure, we have the true faith. Yeah, we're the and city on a hill, right? We're, ex exactly, yeah. exactly. And and what they miss is, no, you're, you're the product of a tradition, of a specific tradition, and you're living out that tradition within a particular cultural context. And, uh, um, and so I think that should just, uh, that should give us pause. It should cause us to be humble and it should cause us to, uh, to be constantly reevaluating our, um, you know, where we're putting temporal concerns, uh, before, uh, uh before you could say the, the, the truths of the faith. Right. Right. I'm glad you bring that up because that's something I bring up in my um, my Native American cultures classroom a lot is the the tendency in in classrooms to study Native Americans as those with some exotic culture and we uh, as Americans are those without culture right we're we're normal yes, and yes. everything else absolutely is, and that's a really pervasive form of ethnocentrism that I think we have to fight yeah. here and and I always use the uh, analogy of, of the, the idea that when I talk to a classroom, most people don't identify me as having an accent, but actually I do. And yeah. if I went anywhere else in the yeah. world, I do have an accent, but we think of uh, accents, American accents as being those without, and then anybody else has an accent, right? And, and, and culture works much the same way. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I teach my world history course, so I teach ancient to uh, medieval world history, I always begin with uh, with a finding made by a team of psychologists. This was about 10 years ago, who they say Westerners and particularly Americans are weird. And they, they <laughs> use weird as an acronym, you know, where they say it, it, and as psychologists, what they looked at were different uh, psychological studies, studies of people's uh, um you know, cognitive abilities and so forth. And they found that Americans, they process things in their, in their brains differently than people of other yeah. cultures. And, and this is something I, I start, that's with day one where I say, you know, it's not the rest of the world that's weird. We're the weird ones. And, and so then in the course is to look at, okay, how did we get to that point? Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Um, we got about a minute left, uh, Bruce, uh, you're working on a fascinating new research project right yeah. now on hockey. Tell us a little bit about your your project. Yeah, yeah. So, so this last book that's coming out right now is you know deals with theology and architecture right, and art, right. and philosophy, and you know. So I move from the, from the sublime of human achievement and creativity <laughs> to to hockey, and uh, yeah. So, you know, so I grew up in Minnesota, obviously, I grew up playing hockey, uh, I brief, I was I was a youth hockey coach. Uh, so so I grew up in this environment. And uh, uh, my interests recently have been turning to sports history. And you know, it follows from my time in Prague, studying nationalism and religion. And, and then we look at national nationalism and religion as uh, as constructed identities, we see the same thing with people's fan identities, right? There are narratives, there are rituals, uh, there are ideas about the good guys and the bad guys that are passed on from generation to generation. And so, what I'm doing is applying uh, what I've uh, what I've been studying and researching and thinking and studying religion and nationalism and and applying it now to to the world of sport and it also allows me to uh, uh, I'm really interested in looking at sport and globalization looking at these international rivalries that we talked about at, at the start of the podcast and and also the way that the sport is going today that's great I should also just to just to put a complete ribbon around this whole podcast um, I should also note, and I'm guessing you're going to remember this too, Bruce, on the way to that gold medal, the U.S. Olympic team 
also pulled a major upset against the Czechoslovakian team, right? Yes, absolutely. I think it was, I think it was four to two. <laughs> Was the score, yeah, yeah, if I remember yeah. correctly? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah hey. The Czechs are. I'm I'm going to Prague next year to do research for the book. The Czechs were world power, uh, world a world power of hockey as they are today. I remember. I think it might have been like Kenny Morrow or someone like that who scored the winning goal. But anyway, hey Bruce, this has been. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We've been, we've been kind of sweeping back and forth between the uses of history. Uh, European history, Central European history, uh, religion, um, you know, and I think also, you know, we've been able, I think, Drew, to kind of also integrate uh, some of our listeners' interests in American history into the mix, too. So thank you so much for taking your time to taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks, Drew. This has been great. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. Wow, you know something? I was a little, I was a little worried about going into Czechoslovakia for an episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. It, it but, is an odd spot for an American historian. But you know something? That I think was one of our best interviews. I mean, it was, you know, again, it plays so well. I think into this internationalization of American history theme, there were so many common threads, and I think those of us who are really uh, invested in American history learned a lot from Bruce about uh, the interconnectedness uh, and the the fact that people in Eastern and Central Europe and in Europe generally uh, are grappling with the same issues, have had the same kind of historical experiences, are also in the business of trying to construct societies uh, that have to deal with those delicate balances between church and state and religion. Um, you know, so so I, a great interview. Absolutely. Well, you know, in listening to your your story and then and then the interview, you know, I think one of the things, one of the challenges facing us as historians right now is the need to really define what exceptionalism means. I think a lot of people use that as this superlative to describe how incredible and how special and how chosen by God the United States is, which I think for many of us who are historians, that's, that's a pretty problematic claim. Yeah. But at the same time, exceptional a, a, as a word means uh, it is unlike anything else, and and I think there you, you know you you make a lot of good points about the ways in which the United States as a nation has operated uh, differently than any other nation in in human history, and and that could be a valuable lesson, especially yeah, in I this current climate. I think it is. I recently wrote the foreword for a book on American exceptionalism by a theologian, actually uh, named John Wilsey. And, you know, who's actually one of our one of our uh, supporters of this podcast. Shout out to John Wilsey. Um, but that's how I opened up the foreword. I said, you know, is America an exceptional nation? Of course it is. Now let's talk about what we mean by that. Right. And I think the arrogance of American exceptionalism, as I said in my my commentary, uh, is, you know, the sharpness of that arrogance, I think, is really dulled when you situate America in a global context and you learn things about the Czech Republic and Central Europe and see, uh, you know, see them dealing with some of the same issues. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a wrap, Drew. Yeah, I, I think a, a, our first international foray was a success. I, I loved say. it. I loved it. I think it was a great interview. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Uh, and while you're awaiting episode 19 to drop, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher so that others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Bruce Berglund. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and our host, as always, is John Fia.